Welcome to the inaugural episode of Tax Avoidance, Not Evasion. We are three master's in accountancy students at Auburn University working in tax research, and we're going to share one of the largest tax evasion cases in the history of the United States of America. So stay tuned. We are very excited to discuss a tax fraud case that included hundreds of millions of dollars of tax evasion. Our antagonist is Walter Anderson, a telecommunications entrepreneur and venture capitalist that made millions of dollars during the dot-com bubble. As part of his business enterprise, he owned and controlled multiple companies, and he went out of his way to deceive officials as to the true nature of his involvement and control of those entities. But before we get to the details, I'd like to introduce my two co-hosts, Sarah Catherine. Hey guys, I'm Sarah Catherine. Uh, yeah, I'm a Master of Accountancy student at Auburn University, and we're just super excited to dig into this case about Walter Anderson. Madison? Hey guys, I'm Madison. Super excited to be here. I have a lot of good stuff to say about this case, and I think you guys will really enjoy it. And I'm Oliver Banta, the seasoned one of the group. The time frame for this fraud is the mid to late 90s, where in hindsight, fraud was prevalent as greedy executives tried to keep pace with each other and the dot-com bubble. Enron and WorldCom are some of the biggest failures during this time, but none of them included individual tax evasion at the scale we'll be discussing. Given the time frame of this case, I couldn't help but recall a blockbuster movie that was released in 1999, The Matrix. And similar to our case, a main character was a Mr. Anderson. I imagine the interview for Walter Anderson with IRS agents when something like this. As you can see, we've had our eye on you for some time now, Mr. Anderson. The case has a number of twists and turns. And with that, I'll pass it over to Sarah Catherine. Yeah. So um, now that you've learned a little bit of background about the case from Oliver, I'm just going to kind of dig into what the case and the trials looked like. So in 2005, Mr. Anderson was indicted for multiple counts of tax evasion and fraud. Um, So under this indictment, there was one count of U.S. Code Section 7212A, which deals with the attempt to interfere with administration of the internal revenue laws through corrupt or forcible interference. He was also indicted on five other counts under U.S. Section Code 7201, and these are the counts that he would later plead guilty to for his attempt to knowingly evade taxes and the payment thereof. And his final indictment was for seven counts under D.C. Code Section 22321A for fraud in the first degree. And so during this investigation, the IRS looked at Mr. Anderson's individual tax returns for the tax years 1995 to 1999. But Mr. Anderson only pleaded guilty for the years 1998 and 1999. For the tax year 1998, Mr. Anderson was found guilty of count five tax evasion. So during this tax year, Mr. Anderson knowingly attempted to evade taxes by only reporting around $68,000 worth of income, but he avoided reporting over $126 million of investment income from Golden Appel, as well as $24,000 of interest income from Barclays Bank. Mr. Anderson also failed to accurately report his control of Golden Appel and accounts at Barclays Bank on a Schedule B. Mr. Anderson was also found guilty of operating his business to hide his ownership of Golden Appel and Iceberg by having other people sign documents, creating false documents regarding ownership, and having mailing addresses be connected to corporate service centers. 
So those were a lot of charges and he did a lot of things. And the tax year 90, 1999 looked very similar to 1998. The only exception is the amount of income not reported was over twice as much. Um, the Golden Appel investment income alone was over $238 million. So after he was indicted in February of 2005, um, the tr first trial came in September of 2006, where he pleaded guilty to the two counts from 1998 and 1999, along with one count of fraud in the first degree. So with the guilty plea, Mr. Anderson and the court agreed on a maximum sentence term of 10 years. Um, and then his, his sentencing trial wasn't until March 2007, which Madison will talk about. But while we were reading this case, we came across some super interesting facts that weren't really about tax and fraud, but they were more just about Mr. Anderson. And he seems like a super interesting guy. And so one of the most interesting facts about the case was Mr. Anderson's behavior while in confinement. So from the time he was indicted until he was convicted, he was confined in jail. And so his first placement was supposedly in a nicer facility, but due to him being deemed unmanageable, he was transferred to the D.C. jail. And while in his first placement, he was found with contraband, including a cell phone that had both Internet service and the ability to call overseas. In September 2006, during the trial, his defense counsel asked for Mr. Anderson to be released for the duration of the pending trial because his conditions in the D.C. jail were, quote, deplorable. But the prosecutor did not want to hear it. So they opposed the request by stating Mr. Anderson chose to break the law and the D.C. jail was his deserved punishment. And so this case to me has just been so fascinating because Mr. Anderson, obviously a super smart businessman, seemed to do whatever was necessary to continually break the law, whether with tax evasion, fraud, and then even once he got inside jail, he just couldn't seem to follow the rules. And so now I'm going to let us uh, hear from Madison about his sentencing trials. He sounds like a stand-up guy. <laughs> really? Thanks, Sarah Catherine. Yeah, I agree. There's a lot of really crazy and interesting things about this case. Another thing that I thought was so interesting um, about this case is, for, for one, I think it was pretty easy for them to prove his intent to commit fraud because he was even found with manuals called one was called poof how to disappear and create a new identity and just different things like that coupled with all of his different aliases and things like that it's it's pretty interesting and pretty compelling case for tax fraud so i'm going to go ahead and talk about the sentencing hearing a little bit more so in march of 2007 is when he had a sentencing hearing and the government presented evidence by three different expert witnesses testifying that he had failed to report over 365 million dollars in income in 1998 and 1999, and that resulted in over $140 million in unpaid federal taxes. So in addition to that, they also testified that he defrauded the uh, city of D.C. of nearly $22 million in 1999. So interestingly, throughout the case, when they were calculating all of his tax efficiencies and everything, they presented a summary of the computations of his tax evasion, and that summary was 270 pages long. So you can just imagine the complexity and the scale of this case. Um, eventually, he was officially sentenced to nine years of imprisonment for criminal tax evasion for 1998 and 1999, including a concurrent sentence of four years on the fraud count. So 
Kind of going off of what you were saying about his time in the D.C. jail, he was very unhappy with his sentencing because he felt like his sentence should take into account the poor conditions that he had already suffered in the D.C. jail prior to his formal sentencing. Um, The judges didn't really go along with this, so they didn't agree with that. But he did say after the case that he planned to file what's called a 2255 motion, which would basically be an effort to correct or amend his sentence. So after his sentencing hearing, a couple months later in July, the IRS issued his deficiency notice to him for years 1995 through 1999, totaling $184 million in taxes owed in addition to a fraud penalty of $138 million. So after that, a few months later in September, while he was in jail, he filed a petition to redetermine the deficiency. So the petition stated that he pled guilty under duress to escape the conditions of the D.C. jail and that he actually did not agree with the claims that were brought against him. So he basically filed this petition saying that he actually didn't think he was guilty and he only pled guilty to get out of the jail. So he's claiming that he didn't commit any fraud, and so therefore he didn't owe any fraud penalties. So based on that, he claimed that the IRS was barred from assessing a deficiency notice under the statute of limitations. So the reason why this petition was so troublesome for the IRS is because while the IRS did have access to that 270-page summary of computations, They didn't have access to the evidence that was provided to the jury at his trial, and in order to prove that he actually committed fraud, the IRS needed that evidence. So the reason that that evidence is so important is because under the statute of limitations, the IRS has three years from the date of filing to issue a deficiency notice to the taxpayer, but if the deficiency is due to fraud, they have no time limitation. So it's really important that they are able to prove that he did commit this fraud. So in response to his petition, the IRS filed their own motion to obtain the evidence that was provided to the jury on the basis that if the court were to refuse to provide them with the evidence, it would result in injustice. So the IRS's motion was granted, but under the condition that an electronic copy of the evidence be provided to Anderson. So another thing, this was very problematic because Um, Anderson at the time was incarcerated and so he did not have access to a computer at the correctional facility so while the IRS's motion was granted they still weren't able to obtain the evidence because he couldn't access it on the computer so I'm sure at this point the IRS is very frustrated with this case Um, but following this Anderson actually filed for a summary judgment Um, so he requested a summary judgment on all disputed issues on the basis that the IRS's motion that they filed to obtain that evidence constituted an admission that the IRS was unable to carry the burden of proof and therefore it was unable to prove that it was not barred by the statute of limitations using the evidence that was actually available to them. So the IRS responded and said that they were going to request a partial summary judgment and this was based on the argument that Anderson cannot contest that he didn't commit fraud because he had already pled guilty to tax evasion. So they're claiming this under what's called the doctrine of collateral estoppel. So a lot of back and forth is going on, but eventually the court decided that they were going to grant a partial summary judgment. So they did uphold that Anderson did commit the fraud and that the IRS did have the authority to issue the deficiency notice and that the statute of limitations 
didn't bar them from doing so since the fraud was upheld. The court granted the IRS the ability to issue a deficiency notice for 1998 and 1999, but they denied the IRS the ability to assess deficiencies for 1995 through 97 because his conviction was only actually related to 98 and 99. Um, They also left the issue of the actual amounts of deficiencies open for reassessment. So eventually, at the end of the day, Anderson was ordered to pay nearly $23 million in restitution to Washington, D.C. Um, it doesn't sound like a lot compared to what he they had claimed that he was actually avoiding, and that is interesting because he would have had to pay an additional $100 to $175 million to the federal government for the taxes he evaded, but unfortunately, due to a clerical error in his plea deal, he didn't have to pay that. So someone made an error in his plea agreement um, and put the wrong statute number, so he avoided completely paying all of those millions of dollars of taxes to the federal government. So I think at the end of the day, I'm sure that the IRS was just so irritated by this because there's so many little things that went wrong in this case. Um, But it is kind of funny. So with that, I will turn it over to Oliver to wrap us up. Thank you, Madison and Sarah Catherine. That's quite the case. It's hard to believe Mr. Anderson was able to avoid paying between 100 to $170 million due to a clerical mistake. Doesn't seem like justice was served to me even if he ended up spending time in jail and paying millions of dollars. Something that was surprising was that given how large of a case this is, I wasn't familiar with it at all. I don't recall hearing about it in the media, and yet we hear a lot about celebrities getting fined and jailed for a lot less. I also found it difficult to find many photos of Mr. Anderson and only found one interview snippet, which I've included here. We aren't asking any government to support us, but we're asking him to stand out of the way Fortunately, he didn't get his wish of being left alone. Did you all know about this case previously? No, not at all, which is crazy to think about because once we started researching it, I just find it fascinating that, first of all, I never heard anything about it. And second of all, it was such a complex case. And it was one of those things where, like, they started in 2005 and one thing after another kept happening. And to think that the outcome just he didn't have to pay because of a miscalculation is is crazy. I would have to agree. I didn't hear anything about this case either previous to researching it, but it is, it's crazy. All the back and forth, all of the appeals and all of the motions that were filed, all of this work, I feel like that the IRS did to come after this guy. And then at the end of the day, they were only able to get a fraction of it because of a clerical error. It's just, it's kind of ironic. And that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening.